Welcome to the AEI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting, informative debate on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Thank you all for coming this afternoon to discuss negotiating with China during peacetime, crisis, and conflict. It's a real pleasure to have this event here at AEI, to have all of you here with me. What we're going to do today is a number of things. First, I will discuss some of the findings of a recent book that I wrote called The Costs of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a visiting Gene Kirkpatrick scholar here at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm also an assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University. My research focuses on China security and military issues mainly, as well as coercive diplomacy and obviously diplomacy during conflict, given that I just wrote a whole book about that. So I'll talk a bit about what the book says and what it means in terms of the implications for uh, managing a crisis or conflict between the United States and China. And then I'm going to turn it over to our two distinguished uh, panelists that I have here with me today. Very lucky and happy to have both Tom Christensen and Susan Thornton join me to discuss uh, the importance of diplomacy and its role in U.S.-China relations. So just as a way of introduction, even though I'm sure that everyone knows both of these individuals here, uh, Tom Christensen is a professor of public and international affairs and the director of the China and the World program at Columbia University. Before that, um, a year before that actually, for many years, he was a professor at Princeton University where doing many impressive things, he also served on my dissertation committee. From 2006 to 2008, he was Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs with responsibility for relations with China, Taiwan, and Mongolia. Susan Thornton is a retired senior U.S. diplomat who has almost 30 years of experience with the U.S. State Department in Eurasia and East Asia. Until July of 2018, she was serving as the Acting Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. And during her experience at the State Department, she has dealt with a number of tough issues, uh, including crises with North Korea, escalating trade tensions with China, and in general, a very dynamic and fast-changing international environment. Susan is currently a senior fellow and research scholar at the Yale University Paul Tsai China Center and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. And I actually had the pleasure of being with uh, Susan last week in China to uh, have some exchanges and talk about some of these uh, difficult issues, important issues in U.S.-China relations. So to begin, I'm going to provide you with a brief overview of the findings of my book and this research project that I had embarked on probably for more years than I would like to admit. But I think the topic of diplomacy and crisis and conflict is an important enough one to take that amount of time to devote to it. For many of you that might focus on U.S.-China relations, you have probably noticed that a lot of scholars in recent years have noted that there's a higher likelihood of conflict when you have a situation like we have now between the United States and China, in which you have one country that is rising in power and then established great power. IR theorists like to talk about this dynamic quite a bit, but it's not only an IR theory that we're talking about in potential sort of escalation of tensions between the two sides. Policymakers have also noted that there's been this increase in tensions. We are now, according to the national security strategy, in a strategic competition, a great power competition with China. And in my own experience, I do think that the tenor or the tone of the relationship between China and the United States have changed. 
I myself go back and forth to China quite a bit. I'm a big fan of Beijing in particular, and feel like having exchanges with Chinese colleagues can be quite informative in understanding the different perspectives. And for many years, we would have you know high points and low points in the relationship, but the view was always you know how can we get together to talk about fixing the problems that our policymakers are creating for the rest of us. But on my last trip, the discussion actually wasn't so much about uh, you know that this is a wrong framework or. Completely wrong, and we should move back towards pure cooperation. A lot of people were very skeptical that the relationship could return to one that that focused more on cooperation than competition. And so, because of some of these dynamics, it seems to me that there's a lot of importance in looking at the role of diplomacy in particular. A lot of scholars, um, policymakers, focus on how to prevent conflict, and that is obviously a very, very important research agenda. But given that the likelihood of conflict is not zero, uh, I personally think it's equally as important to try to understand and evaluate dynamics that affect how crises turn into conflicts and how conflicts might be too long or at higher levels of violence than we like. And so, because of this, this actually sparked my research agenda. Because in a time of conflict, something that is so key to keep, keeping the level of conflict low. And as well as keeping those conflicts short, is the role of diplomacy. We know that the longer two states refuse to talk to each other, the more likely it is that that conflict is going to continue. But in spite of all the positive effects of diplomacy, in my research, you could actually see that history is replete with examples of leaders refusing to talk to the other side during a conflict. In the Korean War, for example, the U.S.-led United Nations coalition fought for over a year before agreeing to talks. We know in the, Korea, in the Vietnam War, the United States and, and Hanoi fought for almost three years before agreeing to talks. In the Sino-Indian border war between China and India of 1962, talks never emerged between the two sides, and it's probably because they did not talk and negotiate over this border issue that tensions continue to simmer along the border to this day. So, in the book, I actually go through these historical examples of decision making of why these leaders decided at various points in time that they didn't want to talk to the other side, and what was actually necessary to get them to talk to one another. We have a sense that diplomacy is a complex issue; that there's some meaning associated with your willingness and decision to talk to the other side.、Uh, Secret- former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton said about、uh, opening up negotiations with the Taliban. I know that reconciling with an adversary sounds distasteful, even unimaginable, and diplomacy would be easy if we only had to talk to our friends. But that's not how one makes peace. So, to answer this research question of after war breaks out, what factors influence the belligerents' decisions about whether to talk and why they might change their minds, I did these in-depth historical cases, and I came up with an argument that seems, I think, pretty intuitive. But that's kind of what political science is about: is spending years of your life defining variables and measuring things. But I think the the argument is important, which is leaders are concerned that a willingness to negotiate is going to convey weakness to their adversary, and weakness can be understood in terms of degraded capabilities because of the fighting or weakening resolve to continue fighting or reduced war aims. And they're concerned that if they actually convey this weakness, the outcome is not going to be a facilitated peace settlement. It's actually going to encourage or embolden their adversary, maybe to even increase or intensify the conflict. Because if you're on the other side and you see that your opponent has come to you, but it looks like they're suing for peace, you might think, "Oh, this strategy looks like it's working." 
And a lot of times, if you look through history, that's why a country will use escalating force. They want to see, is this going to work? Is this other country going to give in? And so you don't want to give the impression that this type of coercion is successful. And that's why, in many cases, leaders at various points in conflict refuse to talk, because they're concerned that this will actually lead to an escalation of the war, not an ending of the war. Now, you might then ask, you know, how do we ever get countries to the negotiating table if, by definition, all states are concerned about this? And I basically argue that what happens is that states first have to be able to demonstrate through fighting a degree of strength and, and resiliency such that they're not concerned about conveying the signal and that their enemy is somehow constrained in their response. And so if you look at the first factor in terms of afraid of looking weak, there's many things a state can do to try to counteract that. The easiest, if you're very powerful, the easiest is to use high levels of violence. Now, I would argue the United States does this all the time. Right? Before, you, before you offer that olive branch, uh, maybe intensify your bombing first to show I'm not coming to the table because I don't want to fight anymore. I'm coming to the table from a position of strength. But not all states actually have such asymmetric military advantages. They have to fight for longer periods of time to be able to show that military pressure cannot coerce them to do things they don't want to do. So that's the first factor is that states are constantly weighing, you know, have I fought in a way or fought long enough that I won't look weak if I come to the negotiating table. Just an anecdote, when North Vietnam did agree finally in 1968, in April of 1968, to talk to the United States, the, internally they had decided we're not going to look weak because we had, they had just launched the Tet Offensive, which while it was a tactical failure, had led to a surprise in the United States that they could continue fighting at that level. And that was the first time I can see in the, in the documents that the embassy in Saigon, the State Department, Defense Department, Joint Chiefs all agreed when they were asked, did Vietnam come to the table because they're weak? They all said no. So the North Vietnamese at least were right in their assessment. Now is the time to do it. So first, states don't want to look weak. And the second factor is that they're concerned about the escalation of the other side. So if there's some sort of constraints on escalation, this allows for diplomacy. There's many reasons states might not be able to let escalate. It could be they don't have the material capabilities. Maybe you're fighting at full force. Could be that you don't have the motivation, right? What you're fighting for is not so important to you that you're actually willing to fight at higher levels of violence. There can be domestic political constraints. The domestic public doesn't want to escalate. Whatever it is, when, when there are constraints on the ability of a state to escalate, this actually paves the way for negotiations. So what does this mean in terms of sort of applicability to crises and conflicts more generally and, and, and potentially thinking about best practices in peacetime diplomacy to ensure that we have the right things in place if any conflict broke out with China and the United States. The first sort of main finding of the book is that preconditions are not an obstacle to diplomacy. A lot of cases when states refuse to talk to the other side, they'll say, well, I'm perfectly willing to talk to you if you meet all these conditions. And the conditions are usually outrageous. You know, it's basically like if the other side completely surrenders and pulls out all these troops and they say I was right all the time and they'll never do it again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these preconditions look on the surface like they're the obstacle to di diplomacy. But in my research, when a state is confident they won't look weak anymore and the other side won't escalate, then they agree to talks, even though in all my cases, none of those preconditions had been met. In one of my cases in which diplomacy did not emerge, China, in the, in the case of the, uh, the war with India, partially met India's preconditions and talks still didn't emerge. And so my interpretation is that preconditions are kind of a stopgap measure. It's something that states can use to really show that they, don't, that they are not desperate to negotiate because they're so outrageous. 
But once they want to negotiate, they just get thrown out the door. So my first sort of recommendation I have for kind of defense planning is that we shouldn't be spending a lot of time uh, negotiating over the preconditions to whether or not we should talk. Either the timing is ripe and talks occur or they don't. The second out of the three uh, recommendations I have is about escalation. Now this one is particularly unpopular when I brief it to defense audiences, but escalation rarely, if ever, gets the adversary to negotiate short of completely destroying their capacity to fight. So this caveat's important, right? If you escalate to the level that you've destroyed the other side's ability to continue fighting, then yes, they're going to come to the negotiating table and sue for peace. But this is a very high standard of, of destruction. I mean, the United States didn't even reach this uh, in the Vietnam War. So it's actually very rare. Short of that, escalating force to try to get the other side to negotiate with you exacerbates these dynamics that I've laid out. It makes the other side even more concerned about looking weak. It makes them even more concerned that you're going to escalate in response. And so what it means is it makes them less likely to be willing to negotiate with you. We know that you know, states don't want to talk under the shadow of the gun and that compellence in general is difficult. A lot of history has told us, for example, in World War II, a strategic bombing, that if you target civilian populations in hopes that they will then rise up against their governments to get their governments to surrender, that those civilian populations actually harden their resolve when you target them. And what I'm arguing is that same dynamic exists for governments. The more pressure you put on them militarily during conflict, the more their resolve is hardened not to talk to you. So instead, it's actually much better to think about you know, offering concessions or trying to signal that you are constrained somehow in escalating. And it also really uh, allows for a role for mediators. Third party is instead of just being about communication and information transition, transmission, if mediators can be the ones to actually constrain both sides' ability to escalate somehow, be a guarantor, then that, I think, will allow the two sides to come to the table uh, more often. And this is actually a very important point about escalation because I think the United States has a historical tendency to have faith in escalation to bring about diplomacy. But there's one other country that I've looked at that has as much, if not more, faith than that, and that is China. In every war that China has fought, they have said that disproportionate rapid escalation brings peace. And you might think the last war China fought was 1979, so you know that was ages ago, so I don't need to worry. But my research shows that they have taken those lessons and instead of learning it doesn't work, they've decided that it's a good way of moving forward. And they've incorporated that type of learning into their broader military doctrine and to some key texts that they te teach their military officers. So I think there's still a very strong viewpoint that this disproportionate rapid escalation leads to peace. And unfortunately, I guess, uh, for this type of mentality on both sides, it does not. And then the last kind of takeaway in terms of policy recommendations I have is about face-saving measures. Now, this comes up a lot with China in general. When I was just in, in Beijing last week, one of the things that came up, for example, a lot about U.S. operations in the South China Sea was you know, this view that maybe the United States has gone too far, you know, that we've humiliated China, so now China has, you know, could never agree to, to compromise on the South China Sea issue, given how far we've gone. Now, we can have a debate about, you know, that's it's obviously very useful and instrumental for them to convey that message, but I think this brings up this idea of face-saving. In conflicts, there's often a debate about off-ramps. If we get to a point of a crisis or conflict with China, how can we de-escalate this? And a lot of it has to do with how do you allow the other side to save face. Now, what my research shows is that states are primarily concerned during wartime about how the adversary, the enemy, will see their diplomatic posture, how the enemy will understand their willingness to talk not their domestic publics. Domestic publics are important, but in wartime, the most important thing 
really becomes how the enemy is going to respond to you. So what this means is a lot of times in the United States, we think about face-saving measures as something we can offer the other side so that they can save face in front of their domestic public. But if the primary audience, for example, in a crisis is, you know, China is primarily concerned about U.S. perceptions, then us offering a face-saving measure doesn't work because there's a shared understanding that it's kind of BS, right? We've done it to allow them to save face. And so what has to happen is actually those face-saving measures have to come from another party. They can't come from the two sides that are fighting. So these are some of the sort of few ideas, and this is a very sort of hypothetical situation. If you had a crisis or conflict with China, what are some of the things that we need to think about? We need to think about being open to diplomacy from day one and maybe even have a blanket statement now so it doesn't mean anything to say we're, we'd be willing to engage in diplomacy during all crises and all conflicts, not get hung up over preconditions, do not rely on escalation to try to get the other side to the negotiating table, and if you want to offer an off-ramp, you really need to work with mediators and third parties to be the ones to offer that. Now, this is all very kind of hypothetical. I think it's important to think through these in case of any sort of future conflicts, but as you know, today and now, we have a lot of issues and tensions and a critical role for diplomacy in the U.S.-China relationship. And that's why I've invited both Tom and Susan to join me here to talk about how we can think about diplomacy currently in the U.S.-China relationship. So with that, I will turn it over. I wanted to talk about some narratives in this uh, city about U.S.-China policy, basically about the engagement policy and whether it was, quote-unquote, a failure uh, and whether we should stop it and do something different. And what I'm going to try to convince you of is that this whole narrative comes out of a misunderstanding of what the engagement policy was across administrations. It always had, as part of the strategy towards China, an element of deterrence and competition. That was always part and parcel of the engagement strategy. And one of the problems that feeds this, this false narrative in Washington is this concept of hedging, and I'll start with that. There's an idea that across administrations, the United States-China policy has been hedging. And hedging is supposed to be, we have diplomatic engagement to encourage cooperation on the one hand, and we have a strong military presence and a series of alliances in Asia on the other, in case that diplomatic engagement strategy fails, as an insurance policy, in case it fails. And this, I always thought, was a terrible uh, concept with a false dichotomy because the strong U.S. military presence in Asia and the alliances in Asia are enabling factors for successful diplomacy. They are part and parcel of an integrated engagement strategy in the region and towards China and always were. It's not simply an insurance policy against failure. It's a buttress for diplomatic success to have a strong U.S. presence in East Asia with alliances. That means you need to maintain that strength and that position and that competitive position in order to pursue a systematic diplomatic engagement with China, which I'll argue is necessary. I'm a political scientist, so I'll start at a conceptual level and say that diplomatic engagement with other parties is necessary under almost all circumstances in international relations. And I think Oriana's book shows this very well, because she's studying limited wars and saying diplomatic engagement is the prescribed outcome, and there are all sorts of hurdles to getting there, but you should have it. Uh, it's, a, it's part of the solution to the problem. Everything but a full-scale war, where the only acceptable outcome is the total destruction of the enemy, requires diplomatic engagement. 
And those wars are fortunately in human history relatively rare. The vast majority of wars are limited wars over limited, limited objectives. Not everything is World War II. So even in limited wars, like in Oriana's book, there's still a coercive diplomatic relationship between the adversaries called politics by other means, the, conf- the military conflict. And that means that you need to mix credible threats of further violence with assurances that if the other side offers something acceptable to you, you will not exploit that situation and escalate the war at the disadvantage of the other side. That requires a lot of diplomatic engagement to send those signals, even during war. Then when you get into situations where it's just deterrence short of war, you need to send very credible threats to the other side that if prohibited behavior is adopted by the other side, that there is a credible use of force that will follow. And at the same time, you need to send credible assurances that if the other side doesn't adopt those prohibited policies, that they will not be punished anyway. And if you don't combine both of those things, coercive diplomacy and deterrence being a subset of that will fail. So you need intense diplomatic engagement, even when you're dealing with a potential adversary that you're trying to deter. Then when you get into the standard problems of diplomacy on a day-to-day basis, short of deterrence and, and limited war, Uh, economic trade negotiations, law enforcement, consular affairs. You obviously need robust diplomatic engagement, and we do in the U.S.-China relationship. And then there's this idea of seeking global cooperation. We're in a highly globalized world where everybody's policy affects everybody else's, especially with great powers like the United States and China. And if you want to solve problems like nonproliferation, like environmental problems, like counterterrorism, like anything involving the UN with peacekeeping operations, you're going to have to have robust diplomatic engagement with China. You don't have a choice. So it's an absolute necessity for all of these things to have robust diplomatic engagement. So it pains me when I hear the engagement policy has failed. We now need to move to strategic competition, both because we've always had strategic competition, as long as I can remember, with a rising China, And we always will need diplomatic engagement. And to dismiss that part of the equation while you're in a competition with China would be a disaster. But if you just look at the sovereignty disputes on China's periphery, they all require fairly sophisticated diplomatic engagement to deal with from an American perspective. If we look at the South China Sea, uh, we're trying to uh, assert freedom of navigation with China's more assertive pursuit of its long-held claims in the South China Sea. And as part of that, We need to say, yes, we will operate here, but we also need to say we're not taking sides in these disputes where we don't have any claims. And that needs to constantly be conveyed to the Chinese that you're not going to lose anything by allowing us to operate here. With Taiwan, there's a need for a persistent deterrent posture by the United States. I've argued this for a long time. I tried to practice it when I was in the government. And that is to signal that use of force against Taiwan to settle cross-strait disputes on, on the mainland's terms is unacceptable to the United States and runs real risks of U.S. intervention, real risks of U.S. intervention. And at the same time that the United States has to reassure the target, in this case Beijing, that the United States' purpose in maintaining a strong military presence and deterring use of force against Taiwan is not to encourage unilateral changes to the status quo on Taiwan in the direction of independence. If you don't do both of those, you're unlikely to be successful in course of diplomacy. All of that is engagement. People don't think of engagement and deterrence in the same 
sentence anymore as part and parcel of, this, of the same strategy because of this stupid hedging concept that unfortunately US officials have used all too often. Um, and I return to that. And the East China Sea, it's very important for the United States to be clear, and I think the Obama administration did a good job of this with the president in Tokyo doing it, make clear that the Senkaku Islands fall under Article 5 of the US-Japan Treaty, and at the same time, reassure the Chinese that the US isn't taking advantage of that position in any kind of way to poke China in the eye on nationalist grounds by encouraging Japan or encouraging US citizens to take provocative positions around the, the Senkaku Islands. On economic problems, it's obvious that we need engagement. We have engagement now. So despite the fact that we're supposed to be in a strategic competitive environment, we're engaging China all the time on economic affairs, and I think that's appro appropriate. And it's possible in a trade war that the two sides could fall into the types of situations that Oriana studies so well in her book, where both sides say the conditions aren't right to continue talks. If I continue talks now, uh, that will mean that we've signaled weakness in our trade war. And unfortunately, I think that's where China is this week. I don't know if it'll last, but China's there now. You've taken actions now that make talks impossible. I think that's not constructive. In general, that type of position in US-China relations tends to come from Beijing. In other words, the United States will sell arms to Taiwan, or the United States will sanction some Chinese weapons firm for selling weapons to Russia. And China's reaction is, we won't talk on mill-mill relations, on military-to-military -military contacts, until conditions are better for such discussions. I think that that's not a very constructive approach by China on these issues, but the United States does it as well. So when I was in the government, we restarted human rights dialogue with China in the spring of 2008 after six years of no dialogue under the theory that the United States shouldn't talk to China about human rights until China offers some concessions up front, that they should release some prisoners or they should change some policies before we talk to them. I always thought that that was a bad idea. I was glad that we restarted the talks unconditionally in the end in the spring of 2008. And we, talk, we caught a lot of flack for it domestically. Um, but I think that that's the right approach. There's no real cost in talking about these things. And there is some potential value. So why not do it? And both sides have been guilty of that to some degree. Then the last thing I want to say is that the engagement policy as described and dismissed in the current narrative in Washington, and it's a bipartisan narrative. There are plenty of Democrats who are going after the policy as well as Republicans. Um, the, one of the problems is that the engagement policy of the United States, as I see it, which is a mix of diplomacy and competition and deterrence, has been very successful. And I think Americans have become somewhat whiny about the results of US diplomacy towards China. Taiwan. Taiwan is a prosperous liberal democracy. None of that would have been possible without successful US engagement and coercive diplomacy towards China on cross-strait relations. The sky is not falling. More generally, there's been huge shifts in the balance of power in East Asia in China's favor. And China has not used force in anger since 1988 in the Spratly Islands. And it hasn't fought a war since 1979. Most people who know about diplomatic history and military history, if you presented that portfolio, a rising power with a lot of weaker powers on the periphery with which the rising stronger power has many sovereignty disputes, and there's been no war, most 
objective observers would code that as success, not failure. But yet, now everything is crashing down. We need to rethink everything. We need to rethink our strategy because of all the failures we've had in recent years because you know people like Susan Thornton with whom I had the great honor to work and people like me have just failed. We've been naive. We don't understand the problem. And then on WTO negotiations, here's a great one. I will defend, and I don't have time to do it in my presentation, but I will defend that the WTO negotiations with China were a great success for the United States. They didn't solve all the problems down the road that have come up in a highly globalized system. They don't answer all those problems with investment, intellectual property rights protection, all the other things. But for what they did, they did something good, and we need to build on it. But it's been dismissed again across the, the bipartisan divide as a disaster that China somehow got into the WTO. Responsible stakeholders, something that leads... Actually, I've heard people snicker in meetings like this when someone says, encouraging China to be a responsible stakeholder, the Robert Zellick initiative of 2005, that it was somehow naive and has totally failed. First of all, it was aspirational. It was China is a big, giant economy. We need to encourage China to contribute to the stability of the international system because if China doesn't, it's very difficult to achieve very important objectives on the international stage. I think all of that is as true or more true today than it was in 2005 as an aspiration. And then I look at specific problems that the United States cares about. Uh, back when I was in the government, Sudan, Darfur, where China, through very intense negotiations with us, diplomatic negotiations, changed its policy on Sudan, Darfur, and the level of violence in Sudan, Darfur went down markedly when China made that change in 2007, uh, in particular the first half of 2007. One time where I got really frustrated with the press when I was in the government is China changed its policy on this and the front page of the New York Times had an article that said, where years of diplomacy has failed, Steven Spielberg and Mia Farrow have uh, changed China's policy on Sudan Darfur after we had very intense negotiations on these problems. And China agreed to send the first non-African peacekeeping forces to Darfur in 2007. And that made a big symbolic and important difference on the ground in terms of bloodshed. And uh, Ambassador Natsios, I should say, was really in the lead on that and did a terrific job. On Iran, you might say what you will about the Iran deal. You might not like it. You might like it. It wouldn't have happened without some Chinese participation. Why? Because like Sudan Darfur, Iran is by far the biggest economic partner of Iran. We just have to accept that. If you want to use non-kinetic means to pressure Iran, you need China's buy-in. You have to seek it. You don't have a choice. North Korea, it's more obvious. People know that China's the biggest partner in North Korea, but it's the same thing. You cannot pressure North Korea without the use of military force unless you have Chinese buy-in because China alone can provide enough sustenance to both Iran and North Korea to keep those regimes afloat despite U.S. pressure and European pressure. And that's certainly true for Sudan as well. To be successful in that kind of diplomacy on these types of issues, you have to do two things with China. You have to present a picture in which you say, your own equities will be worse off if current trends continue the way they are. In Iran, North Korea, Sudan, Darfur, your own equities will be worse. You'll be in a worse place if you don't help. And if you do help, we, the United States, won't do what you fear most. And this gets to your book. We will not seek regime change. And that's very hard for Americans to accept. 
And if you don't have those two elements, it's very hard to get China's buy-in in a diplomatic engagement strategy. And I worry about that aspect with Iran today. I do believe we should be pressuring the Iranian regime for its behavior in the Middle East. But if you want to pressure the Iranian regime for its behavior in the Middle East and use non-military means, you have to get Chinese buy-in because China is the biggest investor in the energy sector, the biggest purchaser of energy, and the biggest seller of consumer merchandise to Iran by a lot. You have to get Chinese buy-in. You're not going to get Chinese buy-in if our elites, our officials, our academics are saying the only acceptable outcome is the demise of the Iranian regime. It's just not going to work. So you have to decide whether you want that to work or not. And I return to my earlier point, that it's only in worlds where the total destruction of the enemy is the only acceptable outcome, and those situations are relatively rare, that diplomacy and engagement are not necessary. And the vast majority of international relations, including the vast majority of wars, are not such circumstances. They are circumstances where deals can be cut and need to be cut. And Oriana's book does a great service by showing that diplomacy and engagement is almost always the best option. The question is, what are the obstacles to getting there? And she does a great job of uh, exposing that. Well, thank you, Tom. I'll turn it over to Susan. Thank you. Thank you, Tom and Oriana. I'm so glad that the conversation up here, even though it starts with kind of wartime, and Oriana's cases are all about sort of ongoing limited conflicts, as she said. I mean, I think it's so important to bring up that distinction about total war versus limited wars. And, you know, total war has almost, I mean, it hasn't happened in my lifetime, and I'm not that young anymore. So, you know, is this really something that, you know, we can think about as being very realistic? So it does point to the incredible di- importance of diplomacy in even in wartime. And coercive diplomacy has become, I know, very fashionable. Diplomacy is very unfashionable in this town. And it's not totally a function of the current administration. But I have to say, Oriana, that there's a big difference between what you talk about in your book and another book I've read about negotiating, which is The Art of the Deal. You know, it, it, it is not fashionable. It's, I mean, I've been reading a lot about this lately because you know, I have a lot of free time on my hands now. And I've come across a lot of really wise quotes and things from former leaders, um, former American leaders who I really admire. So one of them, one of my favorite presidents is Ike Eisenhower. And he says, you know, Someone was trying to tell him, you know, how to do something with some foreign country, how to negotiate or how to, you know, what kind of pressure he should use. And he said, I know something about leadership and I know something about dealing with nations, even nations with whom we are at odds. And let me tell you, you're not going to hit them over the head with a stick. Any damn fool can do that. That's not how I lead. And that's not leadership. Leadership is about persuasion, patience, bringing them along. And he said it takes a long time, but that's the only kind of leadership that I am willing to participate in. And, you know, that's from a guy who was not a wimp, let's just say. And I think when we think about diplomacy, I mean, what is diplomacy? What is required? You're talking a lot about sort of face and 
issues that have a big impact and, and resonance in domestic politics. And I think we shouldn't overlook the factor of domestic politics in all of these issues. It's, it hangs heavy in the balance in the United States. But you know, we seem to believe that other countries don't have politics. And that's a fundamental error that we often make. Other countries have legitimate interests. So doing diplomacy with another country first requires that you be able to recognize that another country has a legitimate interest in something. And hopefully you can also recognize that you have an interest and then you can come together and try to figure out how your overlapping or common interests can be pursued, hopefully through negotiation. I'm not even talking about coercive diplomacy at this point. This is just normal diplomacy where we talk to people and try to solve problems. And you can do that. You don't have to threaten people every time. You know, sometimes countries are happy to work with us, believe it or not, and work on solving common problems. Tom mentioned a whole bunch of them there. And uh, it wasn't the case every time that we had to threaten the Chinese about some kind of sanction or some kind of you know, military incursion that we were going to make if they didn't come along with us or uh, follow our will. So it's stunning to me the extent to which we have somehow come round to the view that it is not fashionable to talk to people to try to solve problems anymore. But that's what we used to do at the State Department. My assignment today is to talk about diplomacy with China in the Trump era, and you notice I don't have many notes. It's because we're not really doing any. We're not doing diplomacy with China. People make fun of it now. We had a lot of dialogue set up with the Chinese on all manner of issues in the Obama administration, 60-plus dialogues on everything from you know, nonproliferation, nuclear smuggling, biotechnology developments, pandemic disease, climate change, you name it. We had technical experts talking to each other, cyber, crime, everything. Those are all not working now. We're not talking to the Chinese now about any of these constructive areas. And the thinking now in the administration is that this was all a waste of time. What good does it do to talk to the Chinese? They just tap, tap, tap us along. As Eisenhower said, these things take time. It's not super conducive to a four-year presidential election cycle, unfortunately. So that's probably a disadvantage for us, actually, in international negotiations. But the idea of America, the global leader, who has the sort of most soft power and the most persuasive model and ability to get other countries to, you know, we don't have to compel them. They want to go with us. And the idea that we're sort of squandering that now and not using it to its maximum extent is, is really kind of stunning. And I, I, I see, you know, in the media and all over this town, this kind of herd mentality against diplomacy. And I really think it's very regrettable because as that happens, first of all, we're teaching other countries very bad lessons about diplomacy, especially China. You know, the more we threaten and bully and think that we have to use some kind of nuclear ICBM weapon equivalent in the economic sphere to get them to come to the negotiating table, I mean, at some point, you know, what gets done to them can get done to us. And this is not a good model for the future of international discourse. It's not a good model for 
solving problems in the international community and the global sphere. As, as Tom mentioned, all of these common challenges that we have. I mean, I go around now and give talks about sort of U.S.-China relations. And the thing I always say is, you know, do we really think that a lot of our problems that we're going to face in the future are going to be bilateral U.S.-China problems? Because it hasn't really been the case, you know, since the mid-90s, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that most of the problems we were involved in were bilateral problems. Most of the problems have been global, kind of transnational problems that we've been facing. And why would we think in an increasingly globalized world that that will not continue to be the case? And we're talking about one-fifth of humanity here, you know, and a very sort of strong, dynamic economy and a very strong and efficient, not democratic, but efficient, uh, you know, set of governing institutions in China that can bring to the table resources and other things. And we might not like everything they do, and we can have a conversation with them about that, and we do do that. But, you know, the idea that we're just squandering this opportunity to kind of leverage, you know, another potential diplomatic arrow in our quiver is, is it just seems very, very negligent to me, frankly. Now, Oriana talked about sort of issues of face and how we get leaders to resolve problems, especially if we're in a contentious situation. I mean, certainly being in a military conflict is about the most contentious situation you can find. But we're in a pretty contentious situation right now with China, and my understanding is that we are in this kind of standoff, exactly like what you describe in the book. Basically, both sides are refusing to take the first step. And we see one side escalating pretty rapidly, pretty dramatically, thinking that you know, that's going to bring the Chinese presumably to the table. And you know, what I know about China and the degree to which they care about face, you know, that might not be what I would have recommended, frankly. But here we are, and we'll see what happens. But I think it's a lot more productive to think about doing what you have in your book, which is, you know, why are we setting up these kind of standoffs? Why are we setting up these contentious situations? Why is everything a coercive battle? I mean, I maintain that, you know, we've had trade negotiations going on with China the entire time I've been working on China. It's a mm -hmm. constant battle. It's a constant pulling and tugging and hauling. Eight years of the Obama administration, we did this. You know, we got some progress on some things. We were in the midst of negotiating a treaty on bilateral investment, so we were making a pretty good progress on that negotiation when the administration ended. So we never got the treaty, and we never got any of the things that we had been negotiating for all those years. But we were making progress on a lot of things. And, you know, this is iterative. It's not going to change the structure of the Chinese economy overnight. People who think that that's how trade negotiations work, it just doesn't work that way. You come up with problems, you know, all these tech problems didn't exist when, we, when they joined the WTO. So I think, you know, it's delusional, frankly, the way we've approached this trade negotiation. And it's out of, it, not in keeping with any of the history or any of the, of the sort of way we've done this in the past. And I don't think it's that surprising that it hasn't gone extremely well, frankly. But... We'll see. I keep my fingers crossed and hope it's going to somehow come back, come back together. So I think we all should hope for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review, and we'll see you next week.